This is a Federal News Network podcast. Military relocations have happened in fits and starts throughout the pandemic. For a few months, the Defense Department even completely stopped service members from moving to new orders. Now service members are facing a different problem of supply and demand. Federal News Network's Scott Massioni is with me to explain. And Scott, let's start with some of the issues that are affecting moves right now because it's kind of a constant for the military. That's right. Well, one of the biggest problems really is that there's just too many people moving and not enough uh, movers to to help move uh, these people around the United States. So the demand is extremely high. Right now, 90% of the bases have uh, moved their restrictions for travel down to the green level, which means that you can just go ahead and and go along with your regular orders like you you would. Uh, That 90% is a big change from the you know, 64%, the middling numbers that they were working with for quite a while, almost all of 2020 after the, the stop order um, move finished up. So that backlog is clearing up. A lot of military people are moving back into their their regular orders and everything like that. And this is the peak season. So outside of that, the moving industry says that private moves are also happening at a really a record rate, as we've seen a lot of people are moving to more Uh, suburban rural areas because they can work remotely and they don't feel like they need to be in the city. And then some people are moving into the cities because it's a little bit cheaper now. Finally, the uh, movers have lost 20 to 30 percent of their workforce and their third party freighters are just have been out of business because of the pandemic. So this is really coalesced into a, a really big problem where the rates are going up and the the timing just isn't working out. Yeah, so moving is the new antiseptic wipes. There's just not enough to go around, basically. And so what is the uh, industry and the military, are they working together in some way to get the people moved that need to be moved? So U.S. Transportation Command is working with the moving companies right now. They're also working with the service members to try and make things a little bit more flexible. Uh, You know, there's a time frame. Usually they like people to move within so they can start their new orders. Well, they're trying to work with the commands and make sure maybe you know, if they can't move in this time frame, they're not going to get in trouble. They won't be AWOL, all that sort of thing. They're also trying to work around some business rules within the moving industry. There's some real simple things about, you know, how, how they'll move and, and all that sort, sort of thing. And then finally, there's also a few things that the service members can do. They can get their shipping requests in four to six weeks early uh, before their pickup window just to try and help lead things off. They can ask about expanding the pack pickup windows from the seven-day requirement to the 14-day requirement. And they can also contact their assignments team to determine if they can postpone their move by changing their report date. So, you know, just some some flexibility, like we said, and just some things that, that service members can do and make sure that they, uh, you know, are prepared as soon as that truck moves up. Is it possible for the service member, him or herself, to make the move and maybe stay in some sort of temporary housing, maybe one of those unfixed up hotels on the base that we were talking about the other day, at least to get into the new location to begin the work. And then the family and the tchotchkes would come later. Right. And, you know, that is an option. And the the military actually moved up their reimbursement rate to 100 percent plus a fuel surcharge and additional costs. So if you really want to take the time, rent the U-Haul, do all that sort of stuff and do it yourself, you can do that. Another option is to get one of those storage pods that the, the military has also been advocating for for people. You can just kind of throw everything in there and have a company move it uh, quickly instead of having movers come in, take everything, wrap it up, all that sort of thing. So it's sort of a halfway in between a DYI and uh, having the mover, the full mover status. 
We're speaking with Federal News Network Scott Mossione. So service members then can expect the regular orders to be coming and flowing as they were before the pandemic, but it just might be sort of a convoluted type of maybe out of sync effort to get them, their families and their stuff to the new location. Is that pretty much what they can expect? Yeah. I mean, I talked to one of the leaders of one of the top moving companies, and she said that this is really just a perfect storm for uh, the movers. They, they just can't deal with the, the demand right now and that there's no magic uh, you know, bullet that'll fix all of this. So uh, the military service members just have to expect delays. They have to expect that the military will work with them and be partly flexible. But, um, you know, they still need to get to their orders. So really, one of the biggest things they're going to have to deal with is the frustration of a peak moving season when there's not enough demand and there's more demand coming. Or excuse me, there's not enough supply and there's more demand coming from the private sector than there have been in years past. Yeah, with this crazy hot housing market, lots of people are moving because they can cash in on property. And so, yeah, that's been kind of an epidemic of its own. But what about overseas moves? Because then you don't really necessarily worry about moving vans, but shipping, correct? They don't fly members' stuff over. What do we know about that? So this memo originally came from the Air Force, and it just warned people that they're going to have to deal with some some issues. Now, they only really talked about domestic issues within this. However, there is a supply chain shortage for a lot of things right now, from computer chips to cars to everything else in between. So service members can probably expect delays in many different areas. If you're going to a new base, maybe in Italy or something like that, uh, renting a car might be harder or buying a used car might be harder just because those supply chains have dried up during the pandemic. All right. And now the military service members and the officers, everybody pretty much is coming out of the pandemic, just like much of the rest of society and the federal workforce. And we're beginning to learn what people really had to deal with, I think, at this point. And in some ways, it's coming out of the forest into the light. What do they have to deal with during the pandemic? Is the military trying to assess that and get some sense of what it was really like? Yeah, well, there were a lot of issues that the service members had to deal with. There was a stop-move order from April until June, and that really stopped anyone from going to their new orders unless they had special authorization. That was usually for people who were in really important jobs like nuclear deterrence or intelligence and things like that. That put 30,000 troops in limbo uh, during that that period, and this was just during the period. They were people that were expected to move or halfway through their move, and they were saying, all right, well, I don't have anywhere to go and I can't stay where I am. So what am I supposed to do? Outside of that, a lot of those families were also paying two rents. They had started paying rent in their new house and they were paying rent in their old house and they were stuck in the old house. That was a, a really big issue for military families. And Blue Star families tried to jump on that. It's a military advocacy group. They tried to jump on that and uh, you know help out families who really couldn't pay for this sort of issue. And then finally, they were just stuck with the the old orders that they had. So if you didn't like your job, well, too bad. You're going to be stuck with that one until you get to the new one. And uh, really, there was no end in sight for the pandemic. Uh, People just had to sort of grin and bear it, like many of us, until the end. And you mentioned Blue Star families. Did any of the other military support, USO, whatever, types of organizations also try to pitch in to help people through through this whole issue of the last 15, 18 months? Yeah, we've seen a lot of uh, advocacy groups and military groups uh, come together and help military service members with relief for everything from car loans to housing uh, loans to 
moving, uh, daycare, everything you can possibly think of. Each service has an emergency relief fund, and they've been spending millions of dollars for to help people. Now, as you know, military families and service members don't really like asking for help. That's one of the things that they're known for. Uh, but, you know, they were trying to advocate for people to actually ask for the help that they need because especially when it comes to child care, uh, there just wasn't enough to go around and they had first responders that needed to get out there and do the work to help during the pandemic. And having had service members go through all of this ordeal with moving and pay and all the rest of it in the past year and a half, I guess they would like people to reenlist. And you have reported that the, that the Marines have at least a reenlistment program for a certain set of troops there. That's right. Well, during the pandemic, we've seen a lot of the reenlistment rates go up because the economy has not been uh, very certain. And that has made some of the bonuses decline usually. Uh, but however, in the Marines, the intelligence community, they're, they're still really hurting for those sorts of people. Now, if you're a sergeant and you sign on for uh, six extra years, you have the potential to get about eighty seven and a half thousand dollars uh, as a signing bonus. So uh, that's a pretty nice payday that you could possibly get there. Uh, however, you will be uh, committed to another six years in the military in the Marine Corps, which uh, can be tough at times. But you could possibly do an assignment at the Defense Intelligence Agency or uh, the Fleet Command. Uh, there's a lot of fun, exciting things that uh, the, uh, the Marines are always looking into with intelligence. Federal News Network, Scott Mossione. Thanks so much. Thank you. Check out both of his stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. Welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Rick Wade, Senior Vice President of Strategic Alliances and Outreach at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Previously, Rick was a Senior Advisor and Deputy Chief of Staff to Secretary of Commerce Gary Locke. He worked closely with the Obama administration, and he also worked with Commerce's Economic Development Administration to foster regional economic development in distressed areas and with the Minority Business Development Agency to create jobs through the growth of minority-owned businesses. He received a BS from the University of South Carolina and an MPA from Harvard University. Rick, welcome and thanks so much for joining me. And thank you so much for having me. Look forward to the conversation. Rick, in today's environment, leaders have had to adapt and find new ways to lead with transparency and empathy. But can you tell us a bit about how you've adapted your leadership style? You know, this past year has clearly uh, presented some unique challenges that uh, certainly me uh, or I as a leader uh, have had to adapt. Uh, you think about a pandemic, for example, that has uh, placed us in probably one of the most challenging circumstances is sort of lead in a virtual world now. I've not been in my office uh, for nearly a year. And, and the idea that we don't have the human interaction, uh, which I think is very important when you think about the empathy that is a, a very important value of leadership. So trying to lead from a virtual uh, environment chain and be empathetic and be sensitive to the needs of others has presented terribly difficult challenge. One of the other defining uh, moments, I think, in our time uh, that has dictated uh, a change in leadership, if you will, uh, was the murder of George Floyd. I think it created a whole different consciousness uh, in America and certainly within me uh, about the importance of being empathetic uh, in, uh, in, in the way I lead, to be inclusive, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to, to lead in a way uh, in which you're very sensitive to the impact of your decisions. Uh, on those on others uh, across our community. 
So it certainly has been a challenging year uh, to adapt, uh, but I'm happy to say that uh, I'm still here and we're moving forward. Perfect. Throughout your career, what have been some pivotal moments or lessons learned that have shaped the leader that you are today? You know, there have been so many moments, Shane. I, you know, I grew up in rural South Carolina, uh, quite honestly, at a time when I, I mean, I saw what legal segregation was. I mean, I, I wasn't able to go to an integrated school until middle school, being bused across town. And I remember, as strangely as it may sound, uh, in 1979, I wanted to run for vice president of my student body at Lancaster High School, a liberal school. And I had to run on the ballot as vice president black, literally. And there was another candidate who ran as vice president white. And the irony of that story uh, is that the following year, I ran for president and I won overwhelmingly. That was a lesson for me in leadership. And, and the lesson there was, you know, perseverance, uh, have the tenacity, uh, have a vision and overcoming barriers. And, and I didn't let the idea uh, that the construct that I had to run as vice president uh, 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 deter me from reaching my bigger dream, which was to represent students. So I know that's a, that, that perhaps may be a small example of leadership, but it really did define how I view myself, uh, the vision that I have, uh, my willingness to to fight for change. And that was that was the beginning. I think that set the foundation of how I lead. And there have been so many other moments. Uh, one of the most defining moments for me personally was uh, the, 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 the massacre at Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, South Carolina, a very close friend of mine, Senator Reverend Clemente Pinckney, who lost his life. And, and it, it conjured up, again, these issues of how deep the divide in terms of race in America is. And but it also inspired me to lead even more and to lead harder and to lead with diligence and vigilance uh, to help close that divide. So there have been so many defining moments uh, uh, in my career. I, I will tell you, even uh, after the murder of George Floyd and my role at the U.S. Cha- Chamber of Commerce uh, to galvanize the business community uh, inspired by that tragedy. And now we have a whole broad, historic sweeping, what we call Equality of Opportunity Initiative that I'm leading, that I, that, that I was inspired to develop. And we're bringing together corporations from across America to address what we call equality of opportunity. So my point there, I think, with all of these moments, they've all been pivotal moments at different parts of my life, my career, my journey. And I've seized those moments to make the best uh, of, of them, of, of what I could. That's fantastic. It's a great, great answer. Many stories. Thank you very much for sharing that. Um, who is the most impactful leader in your life? And what quality did you admire about them? You know, I, again, I can't say that I have, I have just one, but I would tell you the one person who, uh, who had, whose historical leadership has inspired me the most, and that is the leadership of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and there's so many attributes there that are consistent with my values. But the one, the one part of his leadership was vision. And I, I mean, the idea that you can have a dream, which we often define and think of his big, I have a dream speech. But I think that's a really important attribute of leadership, Shane, that you can sort of see beyond the challenges of today and see a better future for people and for yourself. So the, the idea that leaders have vision 
despite the challenges. It's seeing a forest despite the trees. It's seeing an opportunity despite the barriers. And that that attribute, I think, is one that that I embody. I mean, I, I I'm very optimistic, uh, despite the challenges, despite the circumstances. So the whole notion of vision uh, was a very important attribute that I I learned and that I've tried to emulate from the leadership of Dr. King. Wow, fantastic! And as someone who's got an extensive background of federal service uh, and out of federal service, what advice would you give? to feds looking to develop leadership skills. And, and you can talk about mid-career, senior career, early career. Um, what comes to mind there? Yeah, listen, I mean, you're aware that I had the, the, the fortunate opportunity. We didn't have a secretary of commerce when uh, President Obama, uh, of course, I served as one of his senior advisors, was inaugurated. And the president asked me to go to the Department of Commerce to hold the fort down. And that was one of the most exciting experiences in my entire career, not just for the title and, and, the, and the wonderful experiences, but I understood the value of federal employees. And, and folks forget sometimes, Shane, that we political appointees, we come and go. But the folks who, who are grinding every day, who are at their desk, no matter rain, sleet or snow, uh, who bring innovations, but yet don't, don't get the credit for it because the political appointees get all the credit. I think I learned something about the humility of, of being a leader. Uh, and and, and, and I, I, I built so many friends who were federal employees, not just at the manager level, but the frontline workers, the administrative assistants. And I was very deliberate. I mean, one of the things that I was most proud of, strangely enough, I was that guy, even though I was senior advisor to the secretary of commerce. And I, I, my office was on the floor, the top floor. We call it the blue carpet, Jane. But I made a deliberate point to go eat in the cafeteria every day, as many days as I could, just to sit down and talk with employees. And I grew from that. And, and, and there were so many times where I took their ideas back to the blue carpet and said, and I told the secretary Locke, you got to go down and sit down and talk with regular, common, everyday folks. They're in the cafeteria, not in the dining room on the blue carpet. And so he started doing that. So the, the point is, I think for me, the advice that I would give is to continue to do the hard work I do think that we should do a better job in government in providing the kind of admiration for those workers as we do the high-level appointees. And, and that may be something that, uh, that I'm looking to work on myself uh, to help continue to advocate for our federal employees. Uh, they, they, those are the hard workers. That's where the work gets done. And, uh, and, and, and so I think that's a lesson for me, if there was some advice and counsel I could give, is to continue to do your work, but but we have to do our work as leaders of these agencies to create ladders uh, of success and, and, and reward and admiration for the hard work that they do. Rick, thank you very much. You've inspired me. These are tremendous insights and stories. Uh, I love every single one of them. You've got a fascinating journey in leadership yourself. And thank you very much for sharing that with us today. Well, thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Thank you for listening to today's Lessons in Leadership podcast. And until we see you next time, take good care. All I want for Christmas is a DWI. Yeah, said no one ever. Impaired driving kills the holiday spirit. Drive sober, drive smart. Extra enforcement now on Minnesota roads. A message from the Minnesota Department of Public Safety.
Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.